0: Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of TBD Conference. Interviewing powerful people is easy, but that's not the Mouthwash way here. Instead, we're exploring the less obvious uh, elements of power this season. What's really driving the world? Who's working behind the scenes to keep the wheels on? Who's messing things up? What's hard and soft power during a pandemic? Who's got power? Who wants it? How did you get it? We're exploring it all. Joining me every episode is a smart cookie of my choosing, and today's cookie is none other than Chandler T. Wilson. I first met Chandler at a data event and was floored by his honest take on where AI is and where it should be going. Um, Chandler's had an amazing career to date and uh, runs his own firm now called Bridge CI. Um, he is in Portugal, I think, uh, at the moment, um, And although he's highly nomadic, uh, so I don't know, but uh, welcome to the show, Chandler. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Great. And I am in Lisbon, yes.
0: Ah, I was was wondering. I remember uh, we had had that quick chat, and that's the thing, and I couldn't remember if you were going. Okay, before I chat more with Chandler, uh, let's talk about where we are and how you can get involved. Um, Chandler Spaces, uh, sorry, Chandler Spaces, Twitter Spaces, uh, is still a beta product from Twitter, so let's explore it a bit. Um, On the mobile app, uh, the top bit is called The Nest. That's where I or any speaker can post tweets like the ones you can see up there. Mouthwash uses this area to discuss them in a section called Desert Island Tweets, which we do a bit later. You can click through follow accounts links etc it's very very handy and it's a unique feature to twitter spaces you can see all your beautiful faces over at the bottom um, and uh, speakers are at the top uh, and first spaces allow up to 11 speakers at a time including the host so you can have a really good chat pass the mic around have multiple voices but uh, it's not a free-for-all and a mess Um, it's very easy to sort of uh, moderate and that sort of thing but lots of changes are coming too if you're in a space and you want to request the mic just hit the bottom uh mic at the bottom left, and uh, you'll uh, alert the host that you want to actually take the mic. Once you've done that, uh, you will either be put into a queue if you're waiting or you'll actually just go live and you'll be able to speak. We don't actually uh, do that here on Mouthwash. Uh, It's more of a show format, but we do take questions via the hashtag #MouthwashShow or one word. Uh, You can click it in the title, actually, and save your fingers some typing at the moment. That's a new feature that Twitter rolled out recently. And they're also introducing a slew of monetization features. So you actually know they're serious about spaces. So you'll be able to pay for really extravagant spaces and get extras and all of that sort of stuff soon enough but mouthwash is free um, if you look at the bottom right of your screens you'll see some icons some dots some people the heart etc dots are where all the settings are so you can turn on captions and accessibility features if you need them um, but let's uh, do some audience participation to start um, let's share out the space so if you please join me and click the icon on the right the little up arrow with a staple pointing upwards um that will share the space if you click on it and you just literally put Click share via tweet. Um, you'll be able to do and just put live now or whatever you want to write uh, and then hit tweet and that will go out to the world um, it's a good thing to do not only because obviously it's nice to sort of share spaces that you're in that you think are valuable but also for everyone that we get into the live Twitter spaces Ecology are actually planting a tree in the TBD forest um, they're incredibly smart people um, who are offsetting carbon footprints and they make it super super easy so if you go to Ecology.com that's ecolog com, you can check out our forest or you could even start one of your own whether it's personal for business Elliot and the team over there are great partners to work with and I can't recommend them enough. Thanks also to Shell for sponsoring the show. Shell's recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner, obviously in step with society. And you can find out more about how Shell is powering progress over at shell.com forward slash powering progress. Okay. Time to shower Chandler in a disgusting amount of emojis. So if you look for the heart with a little plus at the bottom of your screens, you will find all the emojis that you can use. More are coming, we're told. Um, Click the heart with a plus and begin showering while I tell you more about Chandler. And please don't stop until the end. All right. So if you're ready, steady, go. Chandler is what I call an artificial intelligence realist. He knows the power of AI and where it's going, but he's honest about how fast we'll get there and what the results will be. I don't think um, Chandler will mind me saying uh, that he's not everyone's cup of tea because he doesn't mince his words and holds power to account. He's worked with some ginormous entities from Walmart to HSBC, uh, the EU to Wells Fargo, and a lot more besides. Now he's running his own shop, Uh, BridgeCI, Chandler's working with even larger entities and continues to pioneer the use of machine intelligence, open source intelligence, which uh, is an acronym, OSINT, which I learned, um, and alternative data, uh, and he's solving big problems. Um, He's no PowerPoint consultant, though. Uh, That was the one thing that always struck me with him. Uh, Chandler gets into the data and really fixes things, and that makes him my North Star when it comes to AI. Thanks for joining us, Chandler. What was the first thing that you thought of when you woke up this morning? Oh
1: wow! Um, I think uh, I, I I thought that it was first off I was thankful that it was nice out and sunny and that I wasn't in London and it'd be grey. <laughs> so that's that's usually how I wake up in Lisbon to be honest. So yeah.
0: Hey, it's not been bad in London at the moment. It's still sunny. It's it's just it, today was a really nice sunny day. The last thirty degrees, people lose their mind in London, as you well know.
1: Yeah, um, no, it's insane. It's insane how that works. Actually, it's it's the best place in the world when it's sunny. It really is.
0: Yeah. Oh, how do you, I've said that to many people. I'm yeah. like, people are great when it's sunny. When it's hot, people lose their minds. But yeah, um, how have the last 18 months been for you? Obviously, you're in a new country at the moment. Um, and you've travelled around a lot, but um, what have you been up to?
1: Uh, last 18 months, I've nomaded around Europe. So I was in London. I was in France. I was in the Netherlands and in and, and Lisbon. So it's, it's sort of been like a, a European vacation of sorts. Uh, with sort of the, the gray area of COVID and g- not going back into the office or potentially going back into the office uh, when I was at the corporate world. So I took advantage of that and tried to nomad around as much as I could. So right. it's it's been pretty fun in that sense.
0: That's good. I think there's a lot of people who sort of wish they'd probably done that a little bit earlier and that sort of thing. But obviously they have, I don't know, jobs and different bits and bobs, which, you know, some have tested their limits. Others have not, I think, is the phrase. So I uh, hats off to you for doing that. Um, I was very tempted to do it myself, I must admit. Um, right. Let's start at the top. AI is an umbrella term um, for a huge industry. Um, how have the last 18 months been for the AI industry and um, community in general? What's changed?
1: I-, I would say the seriousness of it. So I have never witnessed, I've been doing alternative data and machine intelligence my entire career. I don't know how to do anything differently. Uh, So I'm an AI native in that sense, or a data science native. I haven't seen such a rush of commitment by large organizations ever in my career uh, that I have in the last, I would say, 12 months. And I think this is a combination of organizations shifting to digital work but then how do you manage that complexity and a lot of people are sort of focused on this in the digital transformation standpoint but actually it's a data problem you're only going to be able to manage these decentralized systems with the use of ai and alternative data sets and and now they're actually getting very serious on this so um, i would say it's pretty good and the focus on automation there's a lot of things that could have been done that they're now doing In 2021, that could have been done, you know, in 2012, 2014. Uh, You know, I was at Walmart. I was building out these automated uh, reports, for example, with machine learning and stuff like this that were synthesizing all these data sets. But there wasn't like that emphasis to actually kick it into gear and actually buy into it and rechange the organization like there is uh, because of COVID now.
0: So. Do you, do you also think that, that that speed has come because of a tiny company called Amazon or just, just COVID?
1: I think it's COVID. Um, I, I do. I actually think it's COVID. It's, it's not so much the competitive landscape. So, and I say that from, okay, so like I was at Walmart, right? And mm. we knew how much Amazon was investing in AI at the time, but the organization wasn't making those investments. And they would do things like merger acquisitions uh, to try to sort of fight against Amazon versus building out computation or machine learning uh, organizational core skills. And why I say it's COVID is because when your number one competitor and your revenue, their revenue in 2017 or 2016 was something like 100 million, or sorry, 100 billion. Now it's about parity. It's about 400 billion, I think. It's gone up, you know, threefold in Mm -hmm. the last three years and when your competitor is gaining on you that quick and your competitor is making obvious investments into AI and machine learning but you're not doing that that sort of tells me that a lot of the legacy doesn't really like the comps are sort of superficial if you're going to analyze the comps uh, and and stuff like this but then COVID comes around around and it really sort of it really shows the difference where those investments that Bezos was making in something like natural language processing to build Alexa in 2014 and spending $650 million, he's not going out and buying new NLP, by the way, Natural Language Processing. Uh, sorry. Uh, he, he's building those core capacities. And it wasn't, I guess, obvious for some of these legacy organizations. But then COVID comes around, and now it exacerbates those investments and, and the distance between the organizations that invested in that and then didn't. And now they're really, they're really I think, genuinely seeing, like, oh, wow, you know, we really should have done this. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah. Before we get into the nitty gritty of what you've done in the past, because I think that's a really interesting thing that sets you apart if nothing else um f- for the people who might be listening who don't 100 percent sort of they they have ai they know what hollywood's sort of presented with them f- tell us in your words how you talk about ai to boardrooms and that sort of stuff because <clears> we know they're not the most technical of people but you work with FTSE 100 people that you know you kind of need to get up to speed very quickly how do you describe ai which is the umbrella term and then the subsects because you obviously focus on machine learning so explain that as well
1: yeah so I really focus on machine learning as a holistic thing. So, And I, I actually use the term machine intelligence because I think there's a lot of different intelligence out there. A lot of people use artificial. I think it sort of demeans what these machines can do. So there's things that humans can collaborate with machines on, for one, uh, and guide these machines. So I, I like to sort of, when I talk to executives, it's how can we actually model what you do today? right? Um, And then we have to think about the data set. So a lot of focus is on the algorithms. Actually, it's, and they'll say this quite a bit, like garbage in, garbage out, but it's how do you actually model your current process with some type of proxy data set? So before I go into a meeting, because that can get kind of abstract, before I go into a meeting uh, with some of these executives or some of these CEOs that I would talk to, is I actually try to forecast their problem and bring something in immediately that they can empathize with. So I can go in, and I've modeled out some problem, and I've built a forecast of something that they would be interested in, uh, and it might be abstract to them, but it's a topic that's very, very close to them, so they know it enough, where they can sort of then make that leap to say, oh yeah, okay, like this is, this is bleeding edge, but I understand what this is. So I place a lot of emphasis on not so much explaining what machine learning is, but I try to actually walk into the room with, uh, I have a sort of saying like meeting today, insight tomorrow, a lot of the AI teams that I've, you know, I guess worked with or have been around, that, that can take months and you just don't have that attention. And I think, I think a lot of the data science organizations and big organizations, they have these grand schemes of how they're going to implement things, but they, they take forever to do it and then eventually just lose people's attention. <laughs> so uh, it's more about trying to empathize and forecast what they're interested in. And bringing that today, you know, and that's where open source and alternative data is so helpful,
0: actually. Mm. Um, well, let's stick on machine learning for a sec. It is the most popular subsect of AI at the moment and that sort of stuff. So you've explained what it is or, or machine intelligence rather and why it's so helpful. Um, what are companies most asking from you and are they realistic with what AI can do or not do for them yet?
1: Yeah, I, I like to say that AI can do anything. But it's just what sequence we decide to do it, and it really can. I, I I think I'm I'm actually more amazed by how these, how fast the space is moving. But at the same time, I think it's, you know, on that point, it's sort of like, okay, we can we we can do uh here's what we can do in like best case scenario, but. There's things that we can do today and model out today that actually produce like 100 times or 1,000 times more clarity on a decision, for example, like an investment decision or a diligence process that you might have if you're a private equity fund or you're a a big company and you're going to do a merger acquisition. There's sort of like these simple things that I kind of like to I call it like kind of like AI street magic in some ways where it's like, okay, you have a musician in a, or sorry, a, a magician in a deck of cards and a really good mu- magician should be able to impress you with the most simple things. And mm-hmm. there's so much of this in the AI space that I think is really being overlooked. So a lot of my work is literally like showing organizations how to use free data sets. <laughs> you know, like you don't have to go out and hire McKinsey. You don't have to go out and hire Bain uh, to do, some of these things that you're asking, you can actually find a proxy data set to represent that question that you have for these firms and save yourself a couple million dollars, you know? So that's a lot of actually the work that's 90, that's probably 90% of it, I would say.
0: Mm. When you go in, is it the CTO driving the ship in that regard, or is senior leadership sort of getting it?
1: So most of my Clients right now, I would say, are a combination of non non data execs and then a couple data execs. So it's it's a it's a pretty even split between like a head chief strategy officer and uh, someone who's working in analytics, uh, but not necessarily in the weeds PhD
0: data science. I would say. And do you see that changing, or is that sort of sticking fast?
1: Uh, I actually think, in theory, I think the I think the world actually needs to start shifting a lot of the data science personnel in the corporate strategy units. So, what I would hope for in the next five years is I'm working with the chief strategy officer, but they come from a data science background. Right. That's that's kind of the ideal situation. Uh, they need to make that jump, and I think there was. An article in either harvard business review or mckinsey over the last week that kind of says like technology should be the driver or not setting and framing a strategy from you know an mba sort of 101 standpoint and then uh and then executing on that and then having analytics or data science be the measurement aspect of this but actually using these tools to measure and set that strategy
0: mm-hmm. Right. Um let's go back up to the top for a second. So where does power lie in the AI industry? Is it countries or companies?
1: Oh, I would say companies for sure. Yeah.
0: And why is that? Just because they have the most capital or they have the most vision?
1: Uh, so I've worked in public sector. I spent my first five years in public sector. They can't move fast enough. Um, the people that are attracted to public sector just can't make these decisions. Uh, they're not technical enough. They don't have real world pressures and stuff. And I, I think that's actually gonna be a massive issue mm. moving forward. That's that was the reason why I got into actually public sector to try to solve that. And then I left the public sector realizing, OK, there's no way this is, this is a, you know, it's like I, my, my time, I could be more effective doing other things. So.
0: Right. Um, talk a bit about your roles for the EU and how they differ um from Walmart the the jobs that they were asking you to do were they similar or were they sort of different
1: actually a lot of my jobs were all very similar simply because they were the first job of their kind at every organization mm-hmm. i've never had a job where i was replacing someone so i was able to kind of go in and build what i wanted to build uh so to speak and none of my managers uh were were necess- they weren't giving me a blueprint necessarily. So mm. it was, well, what do you think? <laughs> you know. So I would say the difference between working in the EU in 2010 through 2014 and then moving into private sector in 2014 and since, I would say the difference is the accessibility of AI has gone up dramatically. So there's some really good, really fast, tools that you can use now to build a forecast, to build a model that weren't accessible in those days. Mm. So things were far harder. Data, data, getting data, it was expensive to get, it was hard to harmonize, or it was messy. You know, it was kind of like that. And so it just, everything literally was just harder in that sense. Mm. And then, you know, you're, you're mind you, like to, to the EU's defense, I, you know, it was kind of crazy that I even had a job in data science in 2010, because most organizations didn't have these jobs. Yeah. Right. So you need to do this. And I'm an American, by the way, ex ex uh, college fo- American football player coming in to the EU saying, OK, like do all this stuff to a bunch of you know French bureaucrats. Like, how's that going to go down? You know, like it's uh, it's. It was surprising, and I, I sort of look back on that as actually like, wow, they actually did took a pretty big, they took a big jump. I felt they could have done things faster at the time, but that's how you always feel, you know, especially right. especially when you're young and, and stuff like this. But, uh, you know, AI wasn't a term at that point. Open source data was not a term at this point. Alternative data was not a term. And we were doing those things 10 years before anyone was even mentioning those things. Mm-hmm. So in hindsight, I kind of look at that as like, wow, actually, you know, and I had I had a great I had great bosses during that time. It was the organizations that were very challenging uh to implement new things, but at the same time like knowing what I know, know now, very progressive in some ways.
0: Mm. Yeah, it it sounds like it actually. I I'm, I I'm, I didn't know um you a, a a jock, shall we say. Uh, so that's quite interesting Yeah. Um, you mentioned um that companies are in charge or, or has the most power in the ai industry who who are those companies specifically uh, definitely google amazon i would say
1: facebook and then microsoft and then probably nvidia
0: right uh, nvidia is is that chinese or is that i never i never remember no,
1: no 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 that's they um they make the computational tools so they make right. the graphics processing and that's something that, as uh, so, graphics processing units—the things that play these video games that we have—they yeah. they turn out like that architecture is really good for machine learning. So yeah. most of their business is driven by that. And, and yeah, like you know, everyone's gaming now; it's kind of a big thing. You got esports, but I think the big money is moving forward is uh, specific chip manufacturing for AIs. And so yeah. you see Google getting into this too, and, and they have Tensor Cores, uh, which is part of their AI framework for TensorFlow, uh, but still it's it's not quite easy enough for people to just sort of step in and do it. So yeah, NVIDIA so. is the most dominant company in that sense, in terms of the computation, and it's largely driven their valuation beyond,
0: I think it's beyond Intel at
1: this point. Um, yes, definitely. So, um,
0: um, for some reason I thought they were Chinese, but that was interesting. So that list that you gave me two things, number one, sort of jump out at me. Number one, all Western number, number two, um, uh, that's gone. But anyway, talk about that. Why no, no one in China doing AI. I, I heard that it was a big old uh, ten, the Chinese was running ahead.
1: Yeah. Tencent, and Baidu. And then on some levels. So if we were talking about companies versus government, I would say the Chinese government probably has a better handle on it than any government. Mm. Um, Probably even Western, I would say even in many senses, just because it's you you have some abilities right if you're trying if you're a Chinese government and you know you can do things that you can't necessarily do in a uh, elected sort of more open uh, society and so they can actually set a pretty consistent agenda and they've they've I would say the difference between the AIs and China is quite good, and they've actually published more patents and IP in AI over the last, I think, few years than than actually the United States. Um, but it's like the difference between Michael Jordan and Shaq, I would say. So they're sort of they can kind of they're, they're focused on a certain type that's very brute force, I would say, very much just pure like almost computation, and we're just going to have a lot of data, and we're going to make these models. Uh, whereas the West is a little bit more, I would say, more like well-rounded when it came to, uh, or at least the United States, like a little bit more uh, different applications of AI. Uh, it, it's in the consumer space. It's being applied to business in far more sort of differentiated ways, mm-hmm. uh, but both sort of equally effective on the same end, right? Like, yeah, it's a good point. Like, I, I think they're they're doing some pretty incredible things uh over there tencent baidu etc uh in 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 that space and they have a lot of data and they they also have different types of data because the society isn't as concerned about privacy as they are in say like germany or switzerland or something so you have different types of things which they're going to probably have better ais in than than you would have
0: in america or
1: europe so to speak
0: I want to talk about ethics a little bit later, but just before we jump onto that, um, this one may be out of your purview, but you have worked in the public sector and you're a smart cookie in general. Um, How do you think AI is going to impact geopolitical power over the next five to 10 years?
1: Well, you've already seen this with with sort of like the elections misinformation. And it's kind of a scary thing because we haven't even gotten to generative, like algorithms that can actually generate convincing stories, really. Like they're Mm -hmm. still pretty, pretty, uh, they're not bad. They're actually pretty good. But there's still sort of like, you can kind of tell it's not not quite real. And I do worry that bad actors are going to take advantage of these things faster than good actors. And that was one of my concerns at the EU, actually. I kind of highlighted, and this was before... Um, sort of the the Facebook scandal and Cambridge Analytica. But I was highlighting to the EU, it's like, listen, here's this data and we can use this to engage our constituencies. And they sort of thought it it wasn't, they sort of thought it was cheating in some ways. And I said, well, listen, if we don't use this bad actor's will and they'll weaponize these types of things. Mm -hmm. And I had those conversations in like 2013 uh, with some of the top people. And, you know, they, they sort of just couldn't see it, you know, because they didn't understand the technology and stuff. Um, and then that's sort of exactly what played out, right? Like you, you have uh, Russia weaponizing stuff. There's now accusations by, the, by uh, I think, U.S. government recently about um, some of the misinformation campaigns that potentially like China was doing or, mm-hmm. or whatnot. And, you know, whether or not those things are, are true, it, how they're doing them is actually relatively unsophisticated they're not they're actually just having these you know a bunch of people in a room typing stuff it's not super sophisticated five ten years from now uh you'll have a you'll be able to have a machine easily do these things everyone will and so you know with the deep fakes and stuff like this that's going to go beyond just video or sound it's going to go into content and things like this and it's going to be very um very tricky to navigate. It's, it's something that every organization, government, or, or uh, private sector should really, really be focused on, because you're only as good as your information.
0: You mm. I think Facebook's kind of finding that at the moment. It keeps, you know, throwing out these huge numbers that it says, we got rid of x vaccination post, anti-vax posts, and all of this sort of stuff. But it does sort of highlight just how much they are being targeted by these people and interested parties, not just about vaccination, but lots of different things. And it does seem, to your point, to be one of the sort of almost mission critical elements is to stop the swathe of misinformation or just the glut of information, which you know isn't super high quality, maybe, and that sort of thing. I think there's an algorithmic answer to that. But do you think there's more of um a focus for AI just because it's the sexier term or because it's, you know, got the biggest potential for, for change?
1: So from the misinformation standpoint or?
0: Just in both to sort of clean up platforms, basically. At the yeah, moment.
1: I, I think there's a lot of focus on bias and AI. And this is, you know, you wanted to talk about this at one point, but this is, is quite relevant. What a lot of people aren't considering when they sort of look at misinformation, they'll say, okay, like weaponized AI's, they also don't account for the fact that our own bias are amplified by AIs. So the misinformation aspect, people love conspiracies, and they always have. Mm. And and nothing's fundamentally changed on that end. It's just that, you know, in 1960 or 1970, you had Walter Cronkite filtering out all this stuff. And that was the single source. Yeah. Right. And so now we're kind of getting, you ever seen those? those commercials like this is your brain on drugs where (laughs) they're like breaking the kitchen and stuff like this. This is our political system on information that we actually want to see, which is, you know, it's, our brains were not designed to comprehend all of this stuff. I mean, they just weren't. And Mm -hmm. the fact that we think that, you know, we're flawless in this and it's all about bias and AI, I think is sort of like, it's not it's not being introspective enough on the problem. We need to also find a way to filter ourselves. But then you think about, well, how are you going to do that with, you know, a billion people or two billion people? Like, the incentives aren't there. So it, it actually has a – it's a very tricky uh, thing to think
0: about. Um, That's the killer, isn't it? It's yeah. about incentive. When, when you think of platforms just cleaning, cleaning up generally, yeah. um, and we talked about this um, with um, Simon Andrews recently from The Fix. Uh, he he said, like you, they make money off of this stuff. Why would they change that until they can make more money off of not showing it, if that makes <clears throat> sense? They haven't fixed the, the wrong problem yet, if that makes well, sense. So.
1: But, but also, too, it's like we want that same thing, right? So I, I want to see the news feed that sits there and agrees with me. You know, and so they're incentivized by that, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the purest, Issue of that is the fact that people click on things that already confirms you know their wildest beliefs and are slightly true enough to engage people. Right? Mm. Like everyone loves a good, you know, gossip piece. And whether or not it's 60% true or not, right? Like that's what makes it even more interesting when it's, it's somewhat believable. And these machines now are able to kind of amplify that to seek our attention and stuff. So we have to find a some type of middle I wouldn't say middle ground, but just sort of some way to think about how are we going to how would you actually regulate that? Because you also have freedom of speech issues. Um, If the government now is in charge with truth, then it goes back to like Orwell, you know, in some ways. Mm. So you have you have a lot of uh, things here that I just I think the the conversation currently, particularly in AI
0: ethics, is very uh, intellectually lazy. Mm. Oh, well, that's a lovely segue onto ethics and AI, which was a big section I had. It's um, a hugely powerful influence over the future of the world in many respects. What's your take on AI and ethics? I think let's be positive first. Who's getting it right?
1: I, I, honestly, I think most organizations are. Um, most organizations aren't suffering from these massive, massive scandals with uh, AI ethics. I think the biggest issue with AI ethics is you know, how, from an advertising perspective and when your business is built on advertising. I think that's kind of the biggest thing. The majority of organizations, if they're a bank, uh, if they're a retail and they're trying to sell some type of good, you don't necessarily get into the ethics issues on any sort of deep level um, that much because the, the kind of like basic problems are enough. You know, basic, like how to predict the forecast or something like this. So I think generally, most of these organizations are very, uh, still very basic on the ethics uh, stuff. And they haven't kind of reached that point where they need to really think about uh, these things on a a super, super deep level. One of the, one of the examples of AI ethics, for example, that always comes up is the Amazon. I think there was some algorithm they were using to filter through uh, applications and they found that their algorithm favored men over women engineers. And this this is something that comes up is like, the problem in AI. And the point that I sort of like to make is, well, they found it and they fixed it. Try to do that with 10,000 people in an organization. Mm -hmm. Right? So I think that by identifying these biases, because they were training the algorithm on the data to begin with, uh, and of course the data is going to over-index on what the pre-existing sample is. Mm -hmm. And so I think the fact that we can actually identify our own biases and then self-correct, like in that case, this is exactly what they did, is game changing. You know, I, I I don't think that that story is mentioned enough. The fact that they changed it. So to speak. I mean, they,
0: would, they have to, right, because that would get them into trouble if they didn't sort of do it. Uh, just to take that example, I think that's an interesting sort of area where a lot of people go like, But why did it go to that degree to start with? Surely those people would have thought like, have we checked this? Have we double checked? It shows to me that there is a lack of thought going in at the top. And I had a question later on, but I might as well ask it now. You're white. I'm white. We're two white guys talking about AI. Are we the problem here? Um, Diversity in AI, it always seems to be down to the people that code it. And if they're not being either taught that, you know, you don't get just get stuff from GitHub, you know, work up yourselves and that sort of thing. Where is the sort of um, the, the sort of uh, focal point that people need to do when they are creating these either data sets or algorithms? Because at the moment, we seem to be seeing the same problems over and over again.
1: <clears throat> yeah, so I, I would say on that. Um, one of the things that I've actually. I, I think that's more of a function of bad organizational process than it is A.I. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, they're getting a data set from a self-existing data set and they have a specific, okay, we, we need to hire people with like X skills. Well, I think that to begin with is just not smart, right? Like you need to first off figure out, like you need to play to the talents that you potentially can get and look at the positives versus we need sort of like these specific skills in that particular case. So if we want to talk about diversity and how machine learning can actually amplify that, right? I think the old school way of thinking is we know everything and we need people with this skill. Well, actually, if you statistically validate a lot of those assumptions with machine learning, you come to find out that actually the thing that you thought was the driver of success isn't. Mm. And the thing that we sort of increasingly see, and I've done some work in HR on this, is what we think we know isn't really what's driving stuff. <laughs> like if there's one thing I've in this journey that I've seen in my career is, any sort of prior held assumptions, uh, I don't really believe most of them. And most of the data, when we get enough data to replicate uh, the thing that we're trying to model, we actually find that there's a lot of different options that we actually have. And then within those options, you can hire untraditional backgrounds a lot of times. Mm. Um, you just have to be open to like looking at the the, the skill sets and the, the differentiation that comes to the table versus, oh, we need this specific skill set. And I've done this in different organizations, and really the, the reason I'm able to do it is simply using data in AI and saying like, listen, I built a model, and this is the type of, you know, if we have X amount of diversity, we can actually accomplish a lot more from a performance perspective. Or if we have sort of different types of skill sets, it doesn't have to just be a PhD from this school or an MBA from this school and, and all, you know vice versa. You know, so I, I think statistical tools are the way to actually enforce new ways of thinking and new ways of doing it versus uh, creating some sort of dogmatic uh, structure like I've seen, you know, at some of these large orgs. So,
0: so I might be paraphrasing or going to get completely wrong, but it sounds like you want more values versus more um, people, sort of, if that makes sense. It doesn't really matter who does it as long as the values are correct. Would that be right?
1: I would say yes, but in the world... Uh, the- So like, again, like there's a lot of assumptions in business and a lot of those assumptions get disproven daily. Like Mm. Ford was very good at building cars. Well, why didn't they build Tesla? Uh, Walmart was really good at retail. Why didn't they build Amazon? Um, You know, Yahoo was pretty good at search. Why didn't they build Google? And I think, I think like companies get very focused on, okay, we know this area and we need this and this and this. Um, but a lot of the data actually, particularly alternative data, open source data, actually doesn't conform to these narratives a lot of times
0: yeah.
1: uh, in some ways. So I wouldn't say it's, it's values, but it's more, it's more like an athletic, if you're, a, if you're running a pro sports team, it's like, okay, I don't, I'm not really interested in, uh, I'm interested in results or Moneyball, right? Like I always kind of say, it's a combination of Inception and Moneyball. you're trying to get to the core of the idea but then you're trying to optimize for that idea and a lot of times it's unorthodox well within that unorthodoxy you're going to actually bring in more diversity and then the only thing we don't we the only thing we're certain in business is you know we don't know what's going to go on in 12 months and so if we have a more robust talent roster more robust perspective or lens that we can you know take from our bench we're going to be more robust against volatility right Mm. and so I think there's that aspect, and a lot of that's backed up by science and, and or, sorry, data science. Uh, a lot of those initiatives I was able to actually get through in some of these organizations to hire, you know, some people that didn't didn't have um, even a college degree, but they did the task at hand that we gave them during the, the interview process better than people with PhDs. Well, you know, those people were from underrepresented groups. Mm. And, and the goal wasn't to hire those people. The goal is to get the best person, you know. So um, we, we need to sort of broaden our, 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 our sort of understanding of what we sort of need. And I, it's, a, it's partially a data problem. It's partially a management thing. And this is yeah. kind of my this is the line I, I straddle quite a bit these days between like corporate strategy and data science. So.
0: I can imagine. I wanted to ask that question because I think it is so important. I think you have hit the nail on the head there is that it is both, isn't it? You kind of need different perspectives to shape the data that you've got. You kind of need better data to give you better perspectives to shape the data further and that sort of thing. How do companies um, ensure that data sets um, that they have, can be, that they use to train AI um, are better and balanced as possible?
1: Uh, one way is to have more data sets. So uh, unfortunately, that's an issue that still requires human judgment. There's actually some people I know that I worked with at Walmart that are are, uh, working on organizations to actually validate whether or not the data set is is sufficiently robust enough to build a model on, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, But it is a tricky question, and right now it's one that's usually with judgment, right? What I prefer to do is bring in more data sets. You have to harmonize those data sets, uh, which is somewhat of a messy task, Mm. What
0: what does that that mean? Because I don't think many people would know what you mean when you say that.
1: Yeah, so just making sure that it – think about like a stock market data set, right? You got – on one column, you got the date, and then you have the price, and then you got the high and the low. But then what you might actually add on to that data set is maybe your product sales. But you got to make sure that that data is landing on the same date. So like, okay, on this date, our stock price was X. And our um, our sales were Y, you know, so to speak. And but as you start to add, like our Google search trends, were this was at this score. And so you have to make sure that those different data sets are harmonized from a um, a date standpoint, but then also potentially normalized, meaning okay, we're going to put them on a scale of one to one hundred. So then you have to kind of transform the data set. Uh, and you can look at the percentages, and then you can build potentially better models by not looking at the pure numbers. I know I'm getting kind of probably technical here, uh, but it's it's a, it's a pain, and uh, it's a it takes up like you know 60 to 80 percent of most data scientist time,
0: I would mm-hmm. say. I must admit, it sounds like something I would not get a lot of joy from. But I assume people who do do get a lot of joy from it. Um, no, that's
1: that's you- not. No, no one gets joy from
0: that. It's, <laughs> no, no one gets joy from it. Yeah. Well, then they must get paid in- incredibly well for it. Um, how do we as people control the data about ourselves that's used to train AI? Ah,
1: uh, that's a that's a tough one. I don't know, because uh, there's a lot of opt outs that you have these days, but mm-hmm. the issue that a lot of people won't think. it. So a big organization will say, well, you know, you can opt out. So we gave people the choice. But if 99% of people don't opt out, well, then they have the sample size to sufficiently model your person, so to speak. Mm. And that's good enough. So it's an interesting thing that I think society is going to start to catch on. I think at some point, I think organizations are probably gonna have to focus on building products that people want to pay for versus selling data. Yeah. Um, but who knows, you know, I, I, again, like I think that way, but that, you know, I, I, I'm very close to this space, so I kind of know what's going on in that, that environment. And I, you know, it's probably the minority in that. Like I don't think the general population's thinking too hard mm. uh, on those things. They have better things to do, you know?
0: So I find with all of these things that people don't think about them until something negative usually happens to them or a person very close to them, which is, you know, the way of the world, unfortunately. Um, yep. Question for it, it was a very interesting New York Times article. I remember that they bought um, I think it was like a thirty three dollar algorithm and bit of um, kit. And it was um, trying to match people in the real world with facial recognition software that so they have bought online. And they managed to get an 82% um, match rate around a certain area, including a professor um, of criminology and that sort of stuff. Um, and it just sort of showed how much of our data is out there and how little um, that sort of data can sort of A, go for, but also the, the power of that sort of stuff. When you think about all of the um, uses of AI, machine learning, and that sort of stuff, is facial recognition the one that you have most concern over, or is that low down on the pile for you?
1: Um, I'm actually more concerned about getting at the cognitive level because there's so much, I I think facial recognition, okay, fine, like they can identify me. I know that uh, the Chinese government, I think, designed an algorithm that detected who was a terrorist or something with facial recognition, and it was apparently like 90% accurate. Now, what they're training that on, I don't know. But it's probably whatever they're trying to accomplish on that, it probably was 90% accurate. Whether or not those people were should be defined as terrorists probably private question, right? Yeah. Um, but it probably was accurate. These types of things are going to be very accurate. I think what's more interesting is the tells from that. So are we going to get to a point where you know, we're just going to have these facial recognition tools in a, as a judge, for example. And with 99% accuracy, it's going to be able to identify if we're lying or not. Yep. Or um, looking at our written text as well, because I always kind of like to say, like, you can run your linguistics. So what you write is basically you. And you can reverse engineer that pretty easy uh, if, if you're an algorithm. Um, and then mm. from that, you can, you can tell things like your political affiliations or who you're going to vote for, or what you think about a product or any sort of even like second or fifth degree things that maybe you don't want to expose to people. Mm. I think that's going to be the interesting space moving forward. Now, I say the, the judgment aspect, right? Like, okay, we're going to have an algorithm judge whether or not we're guilty or, or innocent. I always also say on the flip side of that, if I was lying and I was a convict, I'd any day of the week prefer to have a human jury. If I was innocent, I prefer to have a machine. Yeah. Uh because we know how biased judges are. And this is another thing that's not talked about. We know how biased j- juries are. Uh Danny Kahneman's done a ton of work in this. He has a new book, Signal to Noise. Uh they explicitly go over this. And on some ways it's not a bad thing if if we can kind of use AI to kind of cut right to the point and be more fair, you know, cause it's going to judge even when it's wrong, it's consistently wrong. Mm. Right. And that, that, in, that in itself is a good thing uh, and whatnot, but, but there's sort of like these second, third degree things like that. These AIs are going to be able to extract that aren't public necessarily. So like we have our pictures on our Twitter profile. Okay. That's public, but Maybe they can detect some things that I actually don't want to be public
0: absolutely I mean Amazon and Snap and Facebook are all looking at every image that you put up on the uh, on their platforms and scanning the backgrounds to see what products you have what you might like and that's the inference that's the part which becomes very sort of black mirror for me and it's sort of like are they aren't they they're smart they are they probably are you know that sort of thing but you've also then got sort of overt scanning technologies with things like AR and all of that sort of stuff which is not necessarily the purview of AI but when you start factoring in sort of the brain behind it it doesn't have to be so overt to cause issues or get it wrong i think that's that's the sort of issue for me is like what happens if you get it wrong who do you complain to how do you get it sort of taken down that's what's really unclear at the moment i think is a a big sort of cause for issue bias is is the big one for me because i think that's just an unfair society we don't need we can fix very quickly or it it, it could
1: exacerbate differences too right like so it it could just be like because i if i don't if there there's sort of like two approaches to AI right there's one that in my opinion is the right way it's value creation and it's sort of taking signals and creating something new but that's kind of more abstract and it's more difficult a lot of these organizations are just optimizing the past and so what what could happen with those inferences they could just continue to reinforce the biases mm. versus correct and then create new better ways moving forward you know um, and I think you sort of you end up in just this optimization cycle, which just reinforces the same crappy stuff or the same the same winners and losers. Basically, yeah. it's kind of like NBA super teams, you know, or something.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I think that's the, that's the issue that we sort of run into with AI. You know, it's like do we just get more of the same because people who built it are more of the want more of the same and that sort of stuff. Let's talk about the future for a sec, not to put a pin in uh, that. For I sense it will come into these questions as well. Um, Let's start with where we are now. So you've got chatbots, facial recognition, uh image tagging, natural language processing, sales prediction self-driving cars, sentiment analysis. That's where we are right now. Obviously, there's refinement to do in all of those, but where will we be in say 10 or 20 years from now?
1: Ooh. Uh I think I think there's actually going to be a lot of focus on uh humans as an or- as a structure. So I think we're still far from optimizing how we work in a decentralized capacity. And if I just sort of look at where things were 10 years ago and where they might be 10 years from now, is I think there's going to be a lot of thought between, and there's going to be a lot of data, particularly now because we started this decentralized work and digital work and and stuff. I think there's going to be a lot of thought on how we cohabitate in this sort of digital and physical world, and then how we work. And we're going to learn a lot moving forward on organizational design, because there's going to be some emphasis in the next probably two to five years on designing tools, leveraging graph analysis, and and uh, running algorithms across these you know massive graphs on who works together, and then how to actually optimize and create new, new ideas uh, in the most optimal way. And so in 20 years, I think that will be relatively refined. Uh, and then. Once you have that, I think you're going to probably have more, you're going to have probably like massive organizations that have invested heavily in AI uh, that are running the world, the Googles, the Amazons, it might be someone new. But then I think you'll have this very rich top structure and then you'll have this sort of very rich middle structure, so to speak. Um, Because I think people that are working in the corporate world now are going to have probably you know five or you know, four or five employers versus one, and yes. they're gonna they're gonna be optimized much like for every job, not just okay, you know join this one organization. so I think there's gonna be more in sort of like how we work uh, actually in the next twenty years um, and, and mm-hmm. in a weird way, I think we'll go back to like we'll get back to being human on some levels because some of that will be more optimized, so we're going to I don't know if you remember like the movie Her. Yep. Where where he, you know he, he has this AI and he it's his girlfriend and he falls in love. The interesting thing about that I don't know if people quite understood this was he had a very like I would say upper middle class lifestyle and he wrote cards. And I think the value on some of those things that are more human are going to go up because some of those other things are going to be very optimized.
0: Mm. No, I I agree with that. I think there is, you know, anything which has a human touch or that, you know, is taken time. You know, it's the the lick test, they call it, don't they? When someone's written a card and they like smudge it to see if it's actually with ink or a computer these days and that sort of stuff. I I, I 100% agree. I think um, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack um, when it comes to the future of AI and certainly who owns it in the industries and that sort of stuff. I'm really interested in the environment at the moment. I'm I'm, um, batting around whether season three will be about the environment or not. But um, tell me what you think about AI can bring to the environment. Do you think it can bring it back into balance? Do you think there's a super intelligent system um, that could be tasked with a geoengineering project in our future, say?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, like, uh, I, I think actually, so the explosion in alternative data has been driven by ESG, for example. Yeah. So I I I you know I was doing alternative data 10 years ago no one cared about it and now literally just about every one of my internal alternative data projects revolved around ESG and before it was this the good thing about data and different data sources is you know I think there's that saying what doesn't get measured doesn't get improved or something like this mm-hmm. and these alternative data sets are now enabling organizations to actually quantify that into their valuations and into their forecasts, right? And so, I think on that end, it's a massive leap forward. And literally, the most the the most like amped people to leverage these data sets are in the ESG space, um, without question. Uh, and so, I think I think just from a data set standpoint. We're not even talking about super intelligence, right? We can start to quantify how much carbon should be worth or price it out on a market and create a market for it. Mm. Uh, And that's something that couldn't have been done before. Now, on the more super intelligent side of things, you now can actually look at carbon reduction and quantify that with a combination of satellite imagery and machine learning algorithms that can very, very, you know... Uh, With a lot of precision, analyze how much is going down, how much is going up. Uh, Is this forest actually being cut down or not being cut down, Uh, or something like this? And that creates a lot of opportunities for uh, different types of financial markets, which creates the incentives uh, that are probably going to be needed to actually solve this. I don't think that, I I think there probably needs to be financial incentives to solve these problems. Um, It just seems like that's sort of the way things work. In, in this world. And the more we can quantify forest or uh, place value on that in some type of way that's transparent so then the market can access those markets is going to improve anything. Uh, and you can do that and create those new data sets with you know, new advances in computer imaging, uh, com- uh, computer vision, and uh, also Internet of Things. So the flights, for example. Uh, we'll be able to optimize those the engine cycle or the the replacement cycle, which is going to probably cut down on, uh, you know, how many how many resources you might buy. You know, in the past, you might just say, okay, well, I need five replacement uh, fans because this is going to go down. Well, so you have to then create and manufacture those things, you know, for the turbines mm-hmm. or something. Well, in the future, if you're really really precise, uh, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to. Make those investments, and therefore maybe not create those things. Therefore, cut down on, on uh, you know the amount of resources that are going to be extracted.
0: Mm. You know, I think that's my hope for AI. Really, right. is it's like figuring out what's what's the optimal. X whether we start, end, or you know do something like that, but also the interconnectedness of everything. There yeah. are systems upon systems upon systems, and at the moment they don't work, and that's when issues sort of happen. I hope that AI bridges those gaps and bring that. That's a great name for the business, by the way. Bridges those gaps and sort of really um, exposes bad behaviour from that sort of perspective, but then fixes it just as quickly. Uh, you know, as soon as I say like interconnected system, obviously I'm sure people are sort of thinking Skynet and that sort of thing, but um, <laughs> it. it, it The realities of AI is when I sometimes see it, I go, good God, that's so boring, but it's so important. And I think that's the power of AI is that it looks so uh, somewhat nonchalant, but the actual impacts of it and the power that it has is really interesting. I want to just quickly jump onto your Desert Island tweet because I, I we try and keep it to an hour every time. Um, so Desert Island tweets part of Mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So um, if you turn your attention to the nest, um, Charles actually picked some data that he worked on at the EU. Can you explain what the tweet is about and why you picked it?
1: Yeah, so that was something I did in 2015 uh, using uh, open source data to analyze the uh TTIP, which is a big EU privacy uh, law. And what was interesting about that was I'm not an expert in that space at all. I don't know anything about about, uh, cancer research or anything. Well, in 2018, Francis Collins, who is uh, one of the top guys in the United States, tweeted, or sorry, basically was in Nature saying, you know, this law has um, its inhibited research basically. Yeah. And what, what's interesting about that isn't so much I, I sort of say, like, listen, the AI found that. I just sort of I'm just the messenger on that. And it took the foremost expert three, three years to get to that. And, I, you know, I tweeted that at Walmart, like, I don't know, five, six years ago or something. And it took the leading expert, you know, three years. It took somebody with considerably less, like a million times less knowledge in the space no time to actually find that
0: insight. Mm. Geez. Also, um, I just quickly want to share the other one. It's from a very, very smart man, Chris Anderson, the man who um, came up with TED. Um, It's about the mathematics of war. TED fellow, Sean Gourley, has his work published by Nature. Can you explain why you picked that one as well?
1: Yeah, so uh, that research actually combined a lot of the work that I did in politics. So it took uh, a lot of what was going on with open source data and then it, it quantified it. And so the big thing for that, and the reason why I think that's so interesting was, first off, you know, that's alternative data. And that's from 2009. And so it's not like this stuff hasn't been around. But it showed how you could take new data sets and actually find new information, find new patterns that even the, you know, something like WAR, which is pretty well studied, uh, something that has billions of dollars and resources behind it, didn't quite understand. And so in my opinion, like that paper was pretty groundbreaking in terms of taking new data sets but then creating new information from and in, in with algorithms you know so uh, it, it sort of was this combination and and actually Sean uh, is one of the one of the top guys in AI actually at this point so he's he's a CEO of uh, primer uh, which which does a, a bunch of great things in natural language processing so uh, he's been kind of a pioneer in that sense, but that paper is kind of where he got to start, and it was looking at how you could actually try to understand these things with numbers and statistics and alternative data sets versus just sort of analyze things, quantify things with you know old school coding or or uh, uh, more of a like a linear approach, I guess.
0: Oh, interesting. I'm I'm definitely going to check that out um, for sure. Right. Uh, that is a good place, I think, to leave the conversation on tonight. Um, I can't thank you enough for being part of Mouthwash, um, Chandler. Any final thoughts or advice uh, for listeners when it comes to the power of AI? Uh, I would just say, you know, the, the the biggest thing is embrace
1: embrace it. Some of the most, um, my favorite collaborations, and if, if you're working with data scientists, for example, no one's trying to take anyone's job, particularly if you're a data scientist, you're not going to try to take anyone's job. Um, what I've seen is the, the people that are not technical, if they, if they work together with the data science teams, those are the best, most impactful collaborations. And everyone, and I, you know, talking about incentives and stuff like this, everyone that was a good collaborator that I've seen has left these organizations and made way more money <laughs> in the future. Uh, in terms of very non-technical people, but then they learn a little bit about AI, and then they're just able to apply their 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 own expertise from what they have in their experiences to the next job. But then they know quite a bit about AI, and then all of a sudden they're worth a lot more money. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to like sound super capitalist in that sense, but I think it's a good lesson that you know it's it, it, you don't need to be a PhD in data science to take advantage of these things it is for everyone and ultimately there's not enough people still uh, that that understand how to actually think with machines and work with machines so people really need to kind of learn how to have that jam it's i almost like liken it to a jazz improvised um, sort of uh jam session or something where you got to kind of riff and you got to feel it out but don't expect to define things up front you know because otherwise you're going to not have a good jam session and it's not going to be fun. It's going to be rigid. Uh, So, so, so kind of like try to try to embrace the ambiguity and also know that no one really knows what, what's going to be, you know, two to five years and people might say they do, but they they don't. And so, um, yeah, open-minded, deferring judgment, being open to new possibilities. That's the biggest thing when it comes to AI,
0: I think. So, that's fair enough. It's a fine point to leave it on. Okay, folks, that was episode 15 of season two. Thank you for listening. How do we do? Uh, let me in the world know using the hashtag Mouthwash Show. Um, I am thrilled to have an amazing cohort of brains joining me for season two. I've curated a bevy of smart people from Babylon Health to Beauty Stack CEO, Sharma Reed. Up next is Sedge Beswick from Scene Connects, and we'll be talking about influencers and influence. She's another North Star that doesn't mince her words. Um, so don't miss a minute by checking out Mouthwash. Show.com. Uh, if you want full details, downloadable calendars, links to previous episodes, which are now also a podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, and all other quality podcast platforms. Once again, my thanks to the amazing Chandler T. Wilson. Follow him on Twitter, and you can find out more about him and the work over at bridgeci.co please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for Chandler as the Lo-Fi music plays us out thank you for joining and thanks to the beautiful folks over at Ecology for planting a tree for every listener that we get in season two I've been Paul Armstrong this has been Mouthwash fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on Twitter Spaces thanks
1: Paul